This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Benedict Rogers. His book is The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. It was published by Optimum Publishing International in 2022. Now, Benedict Rogers is a human rights activist and writer specializing in Asia. He's the co-founder and chief executive officer of Hong Kong Watch. We're going to talk quite a bit about some of the work that comes through in his book today, so I'll let him tell you a bit more about himself. Um, But without further ado, Benedict Rogers, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. Well, I first uh, went to China when I was uh, 18 years old um, to spend uh, six months teaching English in Qingdao, the city on the east coast of China, um, as part of my my gap year before university, and that's how I got interested and involved in China. I fell in love with with China during that time, um, and then subsequently travelled many times uh, throughout China and lived in Hong Kong uh, for f- five years, the first five years after the handover, uh, uh, and I don't think I ever anticipated then that the day would come where I would be um, feeling uh, that I would have to be speaking out uh, uh, so much about the human rights situation across China, um, and especially the situation in Hong Kong. Um, But sadly, the way uh, the situation has deteriorated, there came a point um, uh, around about 2014, when the umbrella movement started in Hong Kong, where I felt that, that there was a need to, to speak out, particularly having lived in Hong Kong. And so that's how I started Hong Kong Watch. Um, and then the book came about because uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I had the idea, I, I had written some books previously on other issues, but um, I sort of felt an itch to write another book. And China was the obvious uh, topic for me. I, I did initially think, well, there are so many books on China, what can I really bring that's, uh, that adds value? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that although there are thousands of books on China, there are very, very few, indeed, really, if any, that um, put the different human rights issues in China together in the way that I've done uh, and with a little bit of a, a personal context to it. So that's that's how it came about. Yeah, and actually, that was one of the things I really enjoyed and really sort of got me into the book, that sort of personal connection. You did open the book, um, and just taking you back to that moment, you mentioned Qingdao. You opened with this, like, it was this rollicking tale of, you know, this young person having a fantastic time in Qingdao. 
Just for a little bit of background, um, can you just tell us a little bit more about your times there and how that sort of shaped your relationship with China and Chinese people? Well, I had just a, a, a wonderfully fun and fulfilling and um, uh, I think formative uh, experience uh, in, in Qingdao. Um, I um, went out, I, was, uh, I had applied for a placement with a, an organization that places gap year students uh, in different uh, parts of China and indeed around the world. And I'd applied for their China program. Uh, it's quite a competitive program, uh, but I uh, was selected. Uh, and um, my adventure sort of started with, uh, normally th this organization sends people in pairs. Uh, and um, But at Heathrow Airport, uh, as I was with all the other uh, volunteer teachers uh, flying out together, uh, I got the news that the person who had been paired with me had uh, had actually become really scared of going and 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 so had pulled pulled out and so I was told you have to go to Qingdao on your own um, and I'd never been to China I'd never been to well I I'd been to one or two parts of Asia but I basically had that was with my family you know I, I was 18 years old so it was my really my first time away from home for any length of time and uh, uh, we all flew out to Beijing together. Uh, I was with all the other uh, teachers. We had a couple of days orientation in Beijing. Um, we found that our luggage had been uh, 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 stuck in uh, in Karachi because we'd flown on Pakistani Airways through Karachi. Um, and then the the moment came when um, one by one, all the or rather two by two, all the other uh, volunteer teachers went off to their different cities, and I was the last one. My flight happened to be the last last one to leave, and suddenly I was on my own, and I thought. Uh, wow, what, what do I do? Um, but I, I think that experience kind of actually forced me to make friends with a lot of the people in Qingdao, maybe more quickly than I might have done if I'd been with another British uh, student. And so I, I made a lot of friends among the students I was teaching who were more or less the same age as me uh, and the other some of the other teachers. And um, it, it shaped my... Uh, future in the sense that it, it gave me a real love of China. And given what I do now, I'm always very keen, and I hope this comes through in the book, uh, to, to make a distinction between China and the Chinese Communist Party. And, uh, you know, I love China, the people of China. Um, I'm certainly not anti-China, but I am critical of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, that really does come through in the book. And as you said just a moment ago, it's sort of it, it provides sort of an explanation. It makes sense why you would speak out on behalf of, you know, and talk about the things that you've witnessed um, and advocated for and worked um, in and researched in. So, yes, that certainly does come through in the book. Um, I just want to, you know, just before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you said things changed in 2014. And then, of course, in 2017, you were denied entry to Hong Kong. Um, and you can't visit China anymore either. So I'm wondering if you can just fill the listeners in. Um, what happened here? Because I understand you were perhaps the first foreigner to actually be denied entry into Hong Kong. And it's sort of, it was almost a sign of things to come. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit, about, bit more about that. Yeah, so after I left uh, Hong Kong in 2002, having lived there for five years, um, I, I went back uh, fairly often uh, between 2002 and, and 2017 um, to see friends. Um, 
But it, it wasn't until 2014 when the umbrella movement happened that I began to be uh, quite public uh, on the, the political and, and human rights issues. And I'd started um, writing uh, uh, opinion pieces. I'd um, uh, organized a little campaign when Joshua Wong, Alex Chow and Nathan Law were uh, imprisoned. Um, and then I um, and I'd also hosted a number of Hong Kong activists when they came to London. And then in earlier in 2017, I I was doing all of this until that point um, in my spare time, kind of on my own as an individual. And and by 2017, I had felt that there was a need for an organisation uh, to advocate on Hong Kong. I felt it was no longer sustainable for me on my own in my spare time. And so we were planning to establish. Hong Kong Watch. I, I had come together with a few other friends who had a similar uh, uh, vision. Um, but in order to, uh, or in, in preparation for launching Hong Kong Watch, I had felt that I should uh, make another visit to Hong Kong to um, talk to people and, and get an update about the situation before launching the organization. And so um, I was traveling, I was actually at a conference in Bangkok, and I, my plan was to tag a, a short trip to Hong Kong off the back of my time in, in Bangkok. A few days before flying to Hong Kong from Bangkok, um, I had I did receive some advance notice that there might be a problem in that um, basically the Chinese embassy in London had somehow found out, I hadn't uh, publicized my visit, but they'd somehow found out I was intending to go. Uh, and they started contacting all sorts of people in London, uh, members of parliament, people in the British government, um, and one MP who knows me contacted me and said, look, I've heard from the Chinese embassy and uh, I'm concerned for you. So I took advice on um, whether uh, I should still go or not. I took advice from senior people in Hong Kong in the pro-democracy movement and some political figures back home in London. And everybody was of the view that um, uh, the this, this was an attempt by the Chinese regime to uh, intimidate me into not going but that uh, most likely once I landed in Hong Kong, that the matter would be in the hands of Hong Kong's immigration department. And that uh, on balance, the, the view was it was still likely that they would allow me in and it wouldn't be a problem. But people also said to me, if, if they're serious about doing this, about denying you entry, um, the world needs to know because this would be a serious, uh, uh, a serious issue and a serious violation of Hong Kong's autonomy. And um, and the only way to find out is to go and see what happens. So I agreed with all of that. I flew to Hong Kong, and as it happened, they were more serious than I think we had realised. Although everything that's happened in Hong Kong since then uh, makes my little incident, you know, pale into insignificance. At the time, I think it was uh, quite a serious um, warning sign of of what was to come. Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember reading about it at that time, and it was quite a shock that you know, something like that would happen in Hong Kong at that stage because, you know, it was a few years before the anti-extradition movement. Um, so, yeah, it, I don't think it was necessarily on the public in Hong Kong's radar that something like that, that, you know, especially, you know, someone from overseas would be denied entry at that stage um, because, you know, Hong Kong was understood as this place of free speech and, um public discourse. So yeah, it was it was quite a shock, I think. I want to just, um, before we move on to the sort of more substantive part of the book, just take you back a little bit to the time when 
you just mentioned you lived in Hong Kong from 2002 for five years and that was when you were a rookie journalist. Again, that sounded like quite a fun and exciting time. Um, I, I liked reading about all your adventures, but I liked reading not just about both your direct experience but also how as a rookie journalist you seemed to witness already in 2002, from 2002 onwards, some of the changing political tides in this you know, initial five period that you were working there. Can you reflect a little bit upon the sort of changes that were taking place? Because, of course, this was just in the period after the the handover in 1997 from the UK back to China. So, you know, what can, just reflecting upon that, you know, what did you see when you were there? Well, I think probably the most significant um, uh, kind of early warning sign of worse to come, although I didn't know at the time how much worse would come all these years later, um, was um, the change in my sort of final year there um, with the newspaper that I was working on. Because I would say overall, my experience of those first five years after the handover was that one country, two systems uh, overall was working pretty well. Hong Kong's basic freedoms were uh, intact, uh, and including press freedom. And I was able, I describe in the book, some of the kind of uh, opinion pieces that I was able to write and publish, uh, pieces that you would just never be able to publish in Hong Kong today. So overall, I think things were were in, in a good place. Um, but there were some more subtle uh, signs. And the, and the biggest example of that was when um, the newspaper I worked on, which was called the Hong Kong I-Mail, and it was very much positioned when I joined it as uh, a free-thinking, quite bold, um, critical of Beijing and of Hong- the Hong Kong government, um, sort of independent, uh, pro-democracy voice. And um, it, it had been owned by the investment bank Lazards, and then they sold it to the uh, Hong Kong tobacco tycoon, Charles Ho. And initially, uh, Charles Ho didn't change anything, but then suddenly, uh, one day, um, in I guess two thousand and uh, early in two thousand two, um, he sacked the editor. He sacked quite a lot of other people. Um, brought in a new editor who basically told us all we we could no longer be um, as outspoken and bold as we had been, and that um, pretty much we were going to be turned into a a pro Beijing um, business focused uh, newspaper, and I. I knew, I mean, I was thinking of, of leaving Hong Kong anyway for, for other personal reasons, but I knew then that I couldn't stay on that newspaper if that was the direction it was going to take. And, and so then a few months later, I, I, I left. Um, I had been the editorial writer, so I'd been writing the, the newspaper's editorials. And I said to this new editor, you know, if you're going to ask me to write um, pro-Beijing editorials, um, then uh, I might as well stop writing editorials now. And, um, which I did, and um, and I, but I stayed on the paper for a few more months doing features and and, and other things, and 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 then I left. And I think that was the yeah, that was the most obvious example. There were some other examples that I cite in the book, and and I think, but I think the difference between then and now is that actually it was um, a, a case of self censorship by. Um, uh, you know, newspaper proprietors and uh, bringing in uh, people who do their bidding rather than being imposed as it is now by Beijing. Yeah, and that um, that does make sense because, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, since the introduction of, for example, the national security law, you know, the, the censorship is obvious. Um, 
both directly and also, um, you know, there is necessarily self-censorship because of the offences under the NSL. So I want to turn to the next chapter of the book, which is titled China's Crackdown After a Decade of Opening, The Shrinking Space for Lawyers, Civil Society, Media and Dissent. Now, because, you know, the title of the book, of course, is the China Nexus, but it all comes back to, you know, this sort of central ruling party um, uh, governance. Um, So can you tell me, you know, going back to... um, Firstly, prior to November 2012, sorry, 2012, when the transfer of power to Xi Jinping began, you were frequently in and around mainland China. And you you wrote in the book that during that period, on paper, it seemed as if China might have been opening up. But in reality, there were crackdowns on civil society, media and dissent. And you've just mentioned, you know, crackdowns on media and dissent. So can you tell me about those crackdowns and the silencing of dissidents in that period? Yes, so um, I think, uh, uh, as I describe, um, in in the early 2000s, there was this space that emerged for uh, Chinese lawyers uh, to defend some some human rights related cases that were independent bloggers uh, and uh, society activists and and, and journalists. Um, And although they always, of course, operated within uh, some red lines and restrictions, um, uh, nevertheless, that space was there. Uh, since um, uh, 2012, since uh, Xi Jinping came came in, and, and perhaps a little bit before he, he came uh, to the top job, probably the, it started uh, after the Beijing Olympics in, in 2008, but it really intensified under Xi Jinping. And essentially now, um, you know, m- many, if not all of those lawyers uh, that I had met um, uh, then disappeared, were either imprisoned, disbarred, uh, uh, or, or just simply disappeared. Um, you know, most of civil society has been dismantled. Um, there's really no such thing now or as um, uh, independent bloggers or, or journalists in, in the way that, uh, that that they did exist uh, prior to 2012. And I think um, Xi Jinping has taken this incredibly intense, hardline approach of just eliminating all, all forms of dissent. Yeah, and that's apparent in China and also Hong Kong is a great example of that. Um, I think, you know, tying this all together, that one of the key themes in the book is this idea of the party and Xi Jinping probably in particular attempting to maintain power. Um, one thing that was great in in your book was that, you know, you had so many interviews of um, different uh, dissidents and activists, um, people who've, you know, been in China or in the sort of neighbouring countries and been directly impacted um, during this period of time. You quote Wei Jinsheng, and he's perhaps China's most prominent dissident. He, just for listeners, he spent most of his adult life in Chinese prisoners for advocating for democracy in China. Now, in conversation with you in the book, you write that he said, the so-called Chinese model has become very unstable. On the one hand, the party is very corrupt and on the other hand, people are very dissatisfied. The regime realised that you cannot control society if you only control politics and not the economy. So they face a choice, reform the system and establish democracy or go back to the Mao Zedong era. The party is afraid of losing power and so Xi Jinping is reverting to Mao Zedong's playbook. I'm wondering if you can reflect somewhat on Wei Jingcheng's words. Yes, I mean, I think those words were actually very prescient uh, given what we saw happen in 
China late last year with the uh, incredible protests um, uh, sparked, of course, by the zero COVID uh, lockdown policies and um, a number of incidents, not not least the fire uh, in Urumqi. Um, but what was very interesting was that in a lot of those protests, uh, the protesters were not chanting uh, lift the lockdown or end zero COVID. They were, they were chanting CCP step down, Xi Jinping uh, step down. Um, and that combined with also the um, uh, very courageous uh, protest uh, on the bridge uh, just before the, the party congress a, a few weeks uh, before those other protests. Uh, I think those are signs uh, of the discontent that Wei Jingcheng is referring to. And I think under Xi Jinping, the CCP has lost uh, or is is at least in danger of losing the kind of unspoken um, deal that they, they had with the people of China that, that kind of accorded them some degree of legitimacy, which was they allowed a certain amount of economic, well, they allowed China's economic uh, miracle and a certain amount of growth that, that resulted in rising living standards. Uh, and they allowed uh, this limited space in the 90s and 2000s uh, for some degree of, you can't call it freedom, but some degree of of, of relaxation uh, of freedom of expression. And Xi Jinping now has uh, cracked down on, on the political freedoms, um, but he's also uh, failed to tackle corruption and seems to be going after uh, entrepreneurialism and, and, and the kind of economic growth that Deng Xiaoping had envisaged. So he's sort of, you know, attacked both... Uh, both elements um, and the economic growth is, is slowing down. And I think um, discontent is rising uh, as a result. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it was quite striking to see those prote- protests. Um, turning to this sort of theme of crackdown, uh, the next chapter is about uh, Christians being under, um, you know, being persecuted and targeted by the CCP. Um, going back a little bit again, in 1997, you met with one of the best-known house church leaders in Beijing, and this was a really fascinating story. Um, he was called Alan Yuan Xiangchen, and you quote him again. He said that Chinese Christians are like birds in a cage. Within the cage, there is freedom to fly around, but if Christians escape from the cage in search of real freedom, they are hunted down, captured, and put in a smaller cage. Often their wings are broken. Now, why would the CCP attack or persecute Christians? And can you sort of explain this a bit more? Yes, I think the, the CCP, first of all, has always uh, been very hostile uh, to religion of, of any kind because it's officially an atheist uh, uh, party, uh, an, an atheist ideology. Um, uh, but secondly, it's also uh, very nervous about any um, idea or, or, or movement uh, that brings... Uh, large numbers of people together uh, and and any idea that it feels sort of challenges uh, the, the communist uh, ideology. Um, and so I think those are the reasons it, it's uh, always been repressive of, of Christianity. What's um, changed over time uh, is that, you know, in the Mao era, they really tried to eliminate the church and it was pretty much impossible, particularly during the Cultural Revolution, to be openly a, a Christian anywhere in China. Um, then, uh, under the Deng Xiaoping uh, era and onwards, uh, they realized they couldn't eliminate Christianity, so they tried to control it by establishing, uh, well, they, these bodies already existed, but by sort of reviving the state-controlled uh, church organizations and their 
principle was um, if you're a Christian and uh, you um, want to uh, worship in a in an unregistered house church that isn't under the control of the state, uh, you're you're a target and and many people were arrested. Uh, and then there was a period where that appeared to ease a little bit, or or at least it varied um, depending on where you were in China. And it was the policy was in the hands of the local provincial authorities. And there were parts of China that were more relaxed and, and parts that were more hardline. But they did allow unregistered churches in certain places to, to exist and to grow to quite large numbers and even have their own buildings and be very public. Um, uh, and there was this sort of gray area that uh, a blind eye was turned. But under Xi Jinping, he seems to have reverted to this uh, real attempt to, if not uh, eradicate it, certainly very tightly control it and impose um, sort of his personality cult uh, uh, on it. Yeah, um, I remember reading in another book, um, another really good book about um, China in this period. It's called The Fight for China's Future by Wally Wolap Lam. I think you know him. Um, he wrote that Christianity has the most members in China after the CCP of any sort of group. And because it is so large and it has the ability to unite people across provincial borders, um, in, so Christians are actually understood as a threat by the party to the party. And I think that's really interesting that you talk about, um, you know, this sort of threat that Xi Jinping perceives as a threat to, you know, his own ideology and his own personality cult. Um, and this is why, you know, persecution of Christians has intensified under Xi Jinping. Turning to the next chapter, um, sort of moving slightly outside of China, but still, you know, with the same focus, it's it's on Tibet and it's called um, Tibet Bloodshed in the Land of Snows. And again, you quote, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Suring Dawa. He's a former bank employee from the Lhasa who escaped Tibet in 2020. And some of these stories of people escaping out of Tibet um, in your book were just fascinating. It's not something I knew anything about. So he fled to India and you quote, the Chinese regime's key policy aim is to turn Tibetans into Chinese and Uyghurs into Chinese. So in order to really understand the Chinese Communist Party's repression everywhere, it is really important to understand its policies in Tibet in Xinjiang and Xinjiang. There is a lack of attention towards Tibet at the moment, but as someone who was inside Tibet, what I learned was that any policy implemented in Tibet is subsequently implemented in Xinjiang and now Hong Kong. So if we do not know the situation in Tibet, we do not know the Chinese Communist Party. Can you tell me a little bit more about the situation in Tibet and the extent to which it can be understood as an indicator of the CCP's policy more broadly? Certainly. Um, I mean, I, I have to say I found um, researching and, and writing the Tibet chapter of the book uh, one of the most, well, um, probably the, the part of the book that I, I myself learnt uh, so much uh, that was new to me because of all the issues, Tibet was the issue that I had uh, least uh, previous engagement uh, on. I haven't had the chance to visit Tibet, uh, unfortunately, but I carried out uh, a lot of interviews with with Tibetans, and I did a lot of background reading. Um, and uh, I think it's really important, firstly, to remember that, uh, of course, Tibet was invaded by um, the, the uh, Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army um, almost, you know, very soon after the uh, creation of the People's Republic of China. Um, and so it was it was the very first place of real um, 
repression and and uh, atrocities. Um, and and so Tibetans have have uh, have been living under occupation for for all these years. I think the like everywhere um, uh, there was perhaps uh, some periods of of relative relaxation in in the past. Um, but what we've seen under Xi Jinping is is a again a really intense uh, crackdown. Um, the party secretary who was the architect of uh, the um, intense repression in Xinjiang, which uh, many people describe as a genocide, was interestingly uh, previously the party secretary in Tibet. And Tibet was sort of his laboratory for increasing surveillance uh, and increasing repression. And Tibetans that I interviewed basically said Tibet is is like one large prison camp. Um, and it's become much, much harder for Tibetans to get out Um uh, the escape routes uh, that uh, used to exist have have tightened, um, and and it really is, uh, uh, yeah, as they've told me, a, a state. And of course, in this sense, you know, China doesn't. There's not just this control by the CCP um, under Xi Jinping of Tibet internally, but you know, there's this common theme of attempts to control and influence. Um, outside, you know, that sort of direct region. So, for example, you write about the Chinese regime has a habit of threatening foreign politicians who host or meet the Dalai Lama. Do you want to comment a little bit on about this? Yes. I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, I don't think that you could ask for a more um, reasonable, uh, moderate, um, uh, good uh, uh, opponent, if you were the Chinese Communist Party, uh, than than the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I mean, he he he's um, he's bent over backwards to uh, to advocate dialogue, to advocate. Uh, he doesn't even advocate for Tibetan independence now. He 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 advocates for for some sort of autonomy. Um, uh, and yet, the Chinese regime seems absolutely terrified of anyone uh, meeting him, and they they go out of their way to. Uh, to stop politicians uh, meeting him and to and to threaten consequences if they do, and uh, I interviewed a number of politicians who had met him but who had received lots of threats. Um, the Speaker of the House of Commons at the time, uh, John Burko, told me that he hosted a lunch for the Dalai Lama and uh, had lots of telephone calls from the Chinese embassy telling him to withdraw the invitation uh and uh and and threatening to complain to the british government about him and we uh, he was able to laugh that off because he said they didn't seem to realize that the speaker of the house of commons is independent of the government he was a he was a particularly independent minded speaker um but there's also the case of the fact that david cameron when he was leader of the opposition criticized gordon brown for meeting the dalai lama but not doing so in downing street he he met him in uh, in lambeth palace uh, but then when David Cameron was prime minister, um, he, he stopped uh, some of his ministers visiting uh, the Dalai Lama uh, and didn't meet him in Downing Street. He, he did meet him outside. But so these these um, uh, this pressure that China puts on politicians uh, regarding the Dalai Lama is is really uh, intense. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, turning back to, you know, you just mentioned a moment ago, Genocide Against the Uyghurs. And the title of your next chapter is Uyghur Genocide, Call It By Name. So I want to understand why, you know, what what does this title mean? And also, you know, you write about the Uyghur Genocide Tribunal and you were instrumental in setting this up. Can you tell me about, you know, genocide in Xinjiang region and also the tribunal? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I feel it's very important to mm. uh, to call it by, by name. Mm. Um, and uh, of course, it is a term that shouldn't be used lightly. It, mm. it does have a very clear legal definition. Um, but uh, the US uh, State Department, both uh, the previous administration uh, and the, the current Biden administration, have both recognized it as a genocide. Several parliaments around the world uh, have done so too. And then, of course, as you say, the, there was the Uyghur Tribunal, which um, came about because I uh, happened to know Sir Geoffrey Nice, uh, who ended up chairing it. Uh, and Sir Geoffrey is a very prominent British barrister. He'd been the prosecutor of Slobodan Milosevic. And I introduced him to uh, some Uyghurs uh, and asked whether there was something he could do to to help us answer this question of, uh, from a legal point of view, is, is it genocide or not? And so he put together this uh, independent tribunal made up of people that didn't have a, any previous agenda with China. They weren't activists or, or campaigners. They were lawyers, academics, and, and, and experts. Um, and they had a very rigorous process of uh, uh, public hearings and uh, thousands of pages of written submissions uh, and um, I attended the day when when they presented the judgment, and I remember Sir Geoffrey going through meticulously uh, the different counts of uh, the, the different types of abuses uh, taking place against the Uyghurs and whether they uh, constituted genocide. And one by one, he would he would say, "Not proven, not proven, not proven." And I, I remember thinking, "Oh my goodness, he's he's going to find that it's not genocide. What have I done?" And then it came to the um, uh, the evidence of uh, forced sterilization and forced uh, abortions. Um, and on that specific count, uh, they found uh, that it is genocide because um, under the Genocide Convention, you have to be able to prove intent to destroy um, uh, in whole or in part uh, a, uh, a racial or, or religious uh, group of people. And... Um, uh, one of the arguments against calling it genocide is, um, is it the intention of the CCP to to eliminate uh, the Uyghur people? But I think you can see that with forced sterilization and forced abortions, that's uh, very clear. I would say the other uh, violations of uh, extreme uh, sexual violence, torture, um, slave labor, rounding uh, uh, millions of people up into prison camps, um, also indicates elements of of, of uh, genocide, but I think it's the forced sterilization that that shows um, a, an intent to uh, to eliminate at least in part, uh, if not in whole, uh, a, a a people. Yeah, that was fascinating, um, but also you know quite shocking to read about. Um, the, I mean, the next chapter also was it really took me aback. It it's. Uh, it was titled A Criminal State, The Persecution of Falun Gong and the Story of Forced Organ Harvesting. Now, I liked when I read, you know, you said you were a bit sceptical when you'd heard about this in the past. And to be honest, I'd felt exactly the same. Um, it sort of, it seemed just too awful to be true. 
Um, so I'm wondering what changed your mind and what have you learned about what the CCP is doing to members of Falun Gong? I think um, one of the challenges about believing uh, mm. uh, this um, uh, that this is happening is both that it sounds so horrific, but also, of course, that it's uh, unlike other human rights violations, um, it's it's incredibly hard to find uh, the evidence because, by definition, the the victims don't survive um, when their organs are forcibly removed, um, and the witnesses are those who are uh, parties to the to the crime. Uh, you know the uh, the prison guards, the, the the doctors who carry out the operation, and, and so on. So, um, so that's made, that's what makes it challenging. Um, I think the thing that um, uh, convinced me was, first of all, uh, I I came to know some of the uh, expert researchers uh, on this, um, uh, who are uh, people of real distinction. Um, the, the former Canadian politician David Kilgore, who sadly passed away last year, um, a Canadian lawyer, David Matus. Um, and an American uh, journalist and researcher, Ethan Goodman. And as I, as I listened to them, I mean, they just had a, a, an air of, of, um, of credibility and, and plausibility that made me think, I, I don't think they're making this, this up. Um, one of the things they presented was um, the evidence from China's own public records uh, that uh, of the number of organ transplants that are uh, carried out in China, and there's a real disparity between um, because China doesn't have a tradition of voluntary organ donation the way we do in the UK, and and um, uh, and so there's a huge gap between the number of uh, of donors that that there were and the and the large number of uh, transplant operations that were carried out and the speed that you could get a transplant operation in China, you know, a matter of a few weeks, whereas in the UK. Uh, it, it can take take many months um, to find a matching uh, donor, um, and so so that raises the question: Well, where are all these organs coming from? How are they able to find organs uh, at such speed? Um, and then I think that the so that that those things convinced me that that this is something serious. But I still um, felt there was a need for uh, some further sort of verification from an independent body, and that's where again I turned to Sir Geoffrey Knight. Said, I originally said to him, you know, I believe this is happening, but it's incredibly hard to prove. Would you consider examining uh, the evidence that does exist and the research that's carried out and giving us a, a legal opinion? And he said, Why don't we do something better than that? Why, why don't we hold an independent tribunal? And so he set that up uh, a couple of years before the Uyghur tribunal, and they concluded that this is indeed happening and, and it's a crime against humanity. And then in 1999, China's president at, the t- at that time, Jiang Zemin, announced in a directive regarding the Falun Gong, um, he wrote then, um, destroy their reputations, referring to the Falun Gong, cut them off financially and eradicate them physically. Can you reflect upon, you know, the extent to which that's come true? I think it's uh, certainly come, come true uh, to quite a large extent. I, I, I know that... Uh, uh, many, many Falun Gong practitioners ha- have over the years been rounded up, imprisoned, uh, tortured very s- severely. Um, uh, and I've met uh, Falun Gong practitioners who've, who've left China who have firsthand uh, accounts of, of this. Um, I don't think they've managed to uh, succeed in, in actually eliminating Falun Gong practice because mm. a bit like with Christianity, you know, they, they want to try and eliminate it because it's a 
it's a uh, a belief uh, that has the ability to mobilize uh, large numbers and they feel threatened by that um but Falun Gong practitioners do continue um but they've they've suffered uh, intense persecution and now I want to turn uh, and look more in depth at Hong Kong um, and what's happened there in the last few years. Um, that's the topic of the next chapter. Um, and it's, you know, about the, you say, it's the all-out assault on Hong Kong's freedoms. And, you know, through your work um, and also especially, I assume, or I guess in through Hong Kong Watch, you've got to know a lot of, you know, really notable um, Hong Kongers, like politicians, activists, um, and many of them have either fled persecution or are now in prison. So one thing that really struck me is how the Hong Kong government's response to citizens' demands for things like universal suffrage, which we take for granted, have arguably had the opposite effect that the government's wanted. So rather than quelling the spirit of civil society, it's almost fortified the resilience of citizens. Um, and this is especially evident in the last few years. And I think this is captured really well. One person you mentioned earlier was Alex Chow. Um, he was one of the student leaders in 2014 Umbrella Movement, but he was also one of the very first people sent to prison for political activities. So you quote Alex and he said of his time in prison, when I left prison, I really started thinking about how we could reform and rebuild the city to make it more humane. Hong Kong could be a city that served everyone, regardless of age, sexuality, family background, income. That was my goal when I left prison, drawing on the insights I developed in prison. Being in prison was a transitional moment for me, from being an ordinary student who rose up in a leadership role in the movement to having some reflection in prison about Hong Kong's story. Can you tell me more about the transformation of Hong Kong in recent years and any warning signs you saw before that? Yes, I mean, the transformation has been um, pretty complete and mm -hmm. total. Um, when uh, I first started uh, to speak out on Hong Kong from about 2014 onwards, um, between 2014 and 2019, the, the warning signs uh, were growing, but it was, I guess I'd say, a, a sort of steady pace of erosion rather than a dramatic uh, uh, crackdown. So we had um, the examples of, um, well, we talked about my, my own experience earlier, but um, uh, more, more seriously, we had the examples of uh, Alex, Nathan Law and, and Joshua Wong being uh, arrested and imprisoned, um, Nathan and, and other pro-democracy legislators being uh, disqualified from the Legislative Council, uh, uh, having been elected in 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 free elections, um, uh, and we had the booksellers uh, uh, who were uh, at various times abducted and disappeared into mainland China. So those were, uh, and then of course we had. I remember on one uh, occasion, uh, some prominent Hong Kong pro democracy uh, politicians coming to London and and talking in very technical terms about this um, uh, danger of what they called co-location at the uh, the the uh, rail terminus, the high speed rail terminus, where mainland Chinese law was going to be applied on Hong Kong style, uh, soil, um, just in the terminus, uh, which, by comparison with what's happened now, seems a pretty obscure and and sort of technical um, legal issue, even though it was spoken of very seriously at the time. Um, but what we've seen since 2019 is a is a enormous uh, change. Um, we saw, of course, the 
shocking police brutality uh, in response to uh, the protests. Of course, there were uh, some protesters who resorted to very extreme action uh, as well, and I've never condoned uh, that. But the vast majority of protesters were peaceful and yet were met with brutality by the police. And there's never been, um, in fact, it's now impossible really, expect uh, any kind of accountability for the police, any kind of independent investigation. Uh, and then the, the national security law imposed in 2020 um, and the, the consequences of that um, basically has meant that civil society in Hong Kong has pretty much been uh, entirely shut down. Certainly civil society that has any political nature, I'm sure some social uh, charities can still continue, but but trade unions uh, 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 and other political bodies, um, the impact on the curriculum in, in schools, uh, academic freedom in, in universities, uh, press freedom is probably one of the biggest issues where uh, press freedom has been uh, eliminated, essentially. All the, all the independent and pro-democracy publications, Apple Daily being the most obvious, Stan News and, and others have been shut down. And, and Hong Kong really um, is a totally different place from the Hong Kong that certainly that I knew when I lived there, but even the Hong Kong of, of three or four years ago, um, where you could have uh, space to to express dissent. Now uh, you you could be charged under the national security law for doing so. And, and probably one of the most um, uh, extraordinary aspects of the national security law is that they have this extraterritoriality clause that uh, they they use to threaten people well beyond Hong Kong's uh, borders. Um, and Hong Kong watches, you know, has experienced that. We received uh, letters from the Hong Kong police and uh, and the National Security uh, Bureau uh, saying that what we're doing here in the UK is violating the national security law, and I could face a prison sentence uh, mm. if they could, uh, you know, if I were ever to go to Hong Kong, which obviously, mm. it's, it's a bit ironic because I'm banned from <laughs> Hong Kong, but they, but they <laughs> tell me. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it would be funny, except it's not funny sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so then is Hong Kong Taiwan's canary in the coal mine? Yes, I think it definitely is. Mm. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the reasons... Uh, Taiwan's current president, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, won re-election uh, mm. was because uh, that, that was, I think, in 2019. Uh, and Taiwanese people looked and saw uh, the police brutality in, in Hong Kong and could see that China was totally breaking its promises uh, of one country, two systems. And mm. one country, two systems was the model that um, Deng Xiaoping, when he came up with it, uh, originally had in mind for as a model for Taiwan. But I think... Mm. Uh, Taiwanese people now, uh, you know, very vast majority of them would would not want to have anything. Yeah, to do no. no, and so then, why do you think the rest of the world should care about Taiwan apart from the sort of reasons it's you know good to care about others? But why does Taiwan matter? I think there are several reasons why Taiwan really matters. I mean, first of all, it's um, uh, it, it's in contrast to uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, Taiwan is a a vibrant and very successful uh, dynamic uh, democracy and one of the few democracies in the region. So um, if we believe in democracy, it's in our interest to ensure that uh, it's supported and not um, uh, overturned uh, by, by China. Um, but also uh, Taiwan, of course, is uh, the, the most significant, largest uh, producer of um, semiconductors, the, the microchips that power 
almost all our electronic uh, gadgets, our mobile phones, our laptops, um, uh, everything. Um, and if that were to fall into the hands of, of ECP, I think that would be a, a grave danger to the rest of the world. Um, in addition to that, Taiwan is, uh, is an important uh, economy, an important trading partner, and the economic uh, crisis that would inevitably follow for really for the whole world uh, where an invasion to take place, um, you know, would be enormous. And, and then lastly, I, I think um, Taiwan is in a very strategic uh, position um, in the, uh, uh, you know, the chain of, of, of islands in that part of, of the world. And I think Japan, Korea, the Philippines, uh, and, and others uh, in the island chain um, would feel pretty threatened if uh, if China invaded and uh, well and if it was successful in its in, in invasion of Taiwan. So for all those reasons, Taiwan definitely matters. Yeah, I mean, and that's huge amount of really important reasons like democracy, um, economics, technology, um, especially you know the sort of technological implications you know you look at China and you know WeChat the sort of main social media communications it's completely um, monitored um, and censored so yeah if the CCP was to control that and um, globally that would you know have huge ramifications for every person on a day-to-day -day, um, level. Now Ben your work isn't limited just to sort of China and um, you know Hong Kong, Taiwan these sort of areas you've but also in China's backyard, you've made several trips to Myanmar and you've written a lot about Beijing's complicity, complicity with Myanmar's crimes against humanity. And, you know, this was really interesting because you personally ended up in some really hairy situations in this, on these visits. So I'd like to hear more about these incidents, not just because they were interesting, but how did you become involved in advocacy for Myanmar from a China perspective? Well, I first got involved in Myanmar actually when I uh, was living in Hong Kong, uh, so mm -hmm. you know, twenty years or, or more uh, ago, um, and it came about because I um, I had a friend who was doing a lot of work on the uh, with refugees uh, on the Thailand Myanmar border, uh, and um, I had travelled with that particular friend to uh, East Timor, where I'd uh, previously uh, been quite involved. And he told me more about the situation in Myanmar. And, and so I traveled with him to the Thailand border and that's how it began. And, and then I made many visits, uh, both to the Thailand-Myanmar border, um, uh, several visits to the China-Myanmar border, to the uh, Kachin uh, ethnic people, um, some visits to the India border and many visits uh, inside Myanmar. Um, I, <laughs> I, I try not to make a habit of getting, <laughs> getting kicked out of uh, countries. But in addition to being denied entry to Hong Kong, um, I was twice uh, deported from Myanmar. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so had, uh, uh, had that experience um, that was uh, that predated my, uh, my incident in Hong Kong. Um, and, um, but I, but I, I'd also crossed, as I say, several times uh, from the, from China into Myanmar, uh, actually, um, Without a visa, I mean, I, I went with the uh, with the Kachin uh, uh, resistance army, um, and uh, on one occasion, I uh, the territory that they control at that time they had a ceasefire with the Myanmar military, which they don't now. But um, uh, and they had an agreement with the Myanmar military that uh, although they controlled that territory, the the military. Uh, 
could could pass through from time to time, um, you know, with with permission. And so on one particular occasion, I was in um, a hotel uh, in Kachin State uh, across the border from China um, in uh, Kachin uh, held territory. Uh, and I got a message asking me um, not to go out of my room and not to the hotel, uh, but to stay where I was until I was given the all clear because um, one of Myanmar's most senior generals was passing through and was uh, having lunch two or three floors <laughs> below me. Um, and I think if he'd known who was who was in the, the hotel uh, a few floors above him, he, uh, he wouldn't have been at all happy. Um, in terms of China's relationship with Myanmar, I mean, I... I gradually became more and more aware of of this and i think what's what's especially disturbing is that since the coup in myanmar uh on the 1st of february 2 years ago it's clear that on the one hand china is not necessarily happy with the myanmar military because what china really wants is stability in myanmar uh in order to pursue its uh, economic uh, interests in the country um, but on the other hand, um, they're obviously no friend of, of democracy. And although they were prepared to have a relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi and the democratic government uh, for, for convenience, um, when the coup happened, you know, they did nothing to uh, uh, criticize it or to stop it. Um, uh, and indeed, they've been the Myanmar military's biggest backer together with Russia in terms of providing arms, providing political and diplomatic cover, and sustaining an economic lifeline, um, without which the Myanmar military probably would not survive. So I want to go back to this theme that comes through in the book, um, this idea, you know, you do have this habit of either being kicked out of countries or being chased by, um, you know, Chinese police officers. Um, and this happened again when you were um, in northern China, you were visiting, visiting some northern Korea escapees. Um, so you made then a narrow escape from the Chinese police. But you acknowledge that if you were caught, you might have spent a short time in a Chinese prison and then be deported, but the lives of the North Koreans would have been seriously endangered. So can you tell me a little bit about the work you were doing then um, and the stories of the North Korean escapees, which were just harrowing? Yes. Um, so I, I've worked on North Korea for a, a number of years and um, I, I have a very good friend who has been particularly uh, assisting North Korean expertise, uh, sorry, North Korean escapees um, uh, for many years. Uh, and um, he get, offered me the opportunity to, to go with him um, to northern China to see the situation firsthand and hear the stories firsthand. Uh, and as you say, the, the stories are really harrowing. Um, uh, it's a it's a sign of how um, desperate the situation in North Korea is that uh, North Koreans uh, have been willing to uh, uh, take the risks involved in escaping, in the knowledge that firstly, if they're caught by the Chinese, uh, China has a policy of of sending them back to North Korea to to a potential execution, certainly a a, a, a definite um, prison term and, and severe torture. Um, Women have suffered uh, hugely uh, in terms of being trafficked uh, either as um, and sold as either as wives to Chinese men uh, or um, into the sex trade or other forms of of modern day slavery. Um, and uh, and it's appalling uh, the way uh, they're treated. Um, but the fact that North Koreans are willing to uh, 
to risk uh, the, these dangers um, just shows how, how even worse the, the situation in North Korea is. Um, uh, and um, I was very privileged to uh, to, to see uh, uh, and, to, and to hear these stories and to, to see people, to see the situation. Um, unfortunately, Xi Jinping, uh, as part of his overall crackdown on on everything, um, has made that work even more difficult. And the combination of Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un together, because Kim Jong-un has tightened the border. I mean, he tightened it particularly during COVID because of uh, fear about the, the pandemic. But I think it's um, very convenient for the North Korean regime that now it's much, much more difficult for people to escape. And Xi Jinping, of course, doesn't want people uh, escaping either. So these two dictators have made life uh, even worse for North Koreans and for anyone trying to assist them. And yet China seems to be instrumental in propping up North Korea. Can you just briefly reflect on that? Yes. So again, um, there's some parallels with China's relations with North Korea and its relations with with Myanmar in the sense that actually um, they're not necessarily uh, uh, that keen on, on the two regimes. They would probably rather a regime that was authoritarian but a, a bit more stable and, and less of a, a, a threat to uh, peace in the region. Um, but what they certainly don't want is is democracy. They definitely don't want a, a united Korea uh, that is democratic and, and aligned to the Western world. Um, and, uh, and so they are propping up the, the regime uh, economically, uh, again, with diplomatic and political cover in, in uh, the United Nations and elsewhere. Uh, and um, uh, and not, uh, I mean, there was a time where there were some signs they might um, be more helpful on uh, the nuclear proliferation issue. Um, but even that, they haven't really exerted their influence uh, properly with North Korea. So um, they are um, keeping the North Korean regime afloat in the same way that they're doing with the Myanmar regime. And then finally, sort of bringing all of these points together, the last chapter is called Wake Up Call, What the Free World Must Do to Fight for Freedom. And now, as the book is titled, it truly is a nexus of the CCP's tyranny throughout this region. Um, And this is a strength that does set your book apart, I think, from other books on China. So bringing this nexus together, I'm wondering, what should the free world do to fight for freedom? So I think the the first step is um, is to wake up to uh, mm. the seriousness of uh, the challenge, and I think that is starting to happen. And I I detail in that chapter how in just the last two or three years um, there has definitely been a shift um, in both the US, in in the UK, uh, in in Europe, and, and other countries. Um, and um, it's probably not as as advanced as I would like it to be, but but it's it's beginning to happen. I think um, the second thing that the free world should do is is as much as possible to unite to confront this uh, threat. I, I sometimes say that we we need a uh, a united front to counter China's united front um, uh, because I think the more coordinated we can do, we may not necessarily all do the same thing uh, exactly, but if we can coordinate together, it makes it harder for Beijing to retaliate or to uh, divide and, and rule. Uh, and um, and so that's really important. Uh, and I think uh, I set out in the in the book a, a range of other things that we should be doing, both to uh, uh, speak up and 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 hold China accountable for its human rights violations at home, 
And that includes targeted sanctions, not sanctions against the people of China, but targeted sanctions against officials in Beijing and in Hong Kong uh, and in Xinjiang for um, for their abuses, uh, and particularly for breaking a, an international treaty, the British Joint Declaration in Hong Kong. Um, but I also think that we should be uh, reducing our dependency on China, uh, diversi- diversifying our supply chains, uh, and um, and and lastly, looking at um, how we can help uh, people in China and Hong Kong, um, uh, both in their struggle for, for for freedom at home, but also if they need to, uh, how we can help them to to get out and find sanctuary. And obviously, the UK has done that in a in a very big way with Hongers with the British National Overseas Scheme. I'd like to see other countries uh, provide lifeboat schemes to. Uh, to help Hong Kongers, but also to help Uyghurs and and, and others. Yeah, and that's a really important message, I think, you know, the importance of speaking up, not just for our own interests, um, but, you know, speaking up because uh, for those who are unable to because of the repression and the tyranny that's going on and offering those lifeboats. So, Ben, I've taken up quite a lot of your time, but just before you go, what are you working on now? What's next? Well, um, there's still obviously uh, the, the work of, of getting the book out there. And so having opportunities to talk about it like this uh, uh, is really welcome. Um, there'll be a, I, I did um, uh, a, a very good visit to Canada and, and the US where I did something like 16 events in 14 days uh, for, for the book. Um, there'll be a few events in the UK uh, coming up. Um, but besides that, you know, my work with Hong Kong Watch continues and uh, we're we have an um, exciting program of um, engagement with the and community outreach with the uh, Hong Kong community, uh, both in the UK and in Canada, helping them to um, understand their uh, civil and political rights here and how they can engage with the political system uh, here in in their new uh, their, their new home. Um, we'll be uh, really pressing. Uh, for more work on on uh, sanctions, um, because uh, the Hong Kong government, Hong, Hong Kong officials, and Beijing officials uh, have not yet been sanctioned by the UK, so that's something we'll be pressing. We'll keep the spotlight on on political prisoners um, and trials in Hong Kong, um, particularly Jimmy Lai's uh, trial later this year, uh, and and we have a number of research uh, projects and, and new publications coming out. So. Yeah, a whole range of things, but um, no plans for another book just, just yet. I think uh, I'll, it'll be a while before I do another one. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're going to be kept very busy nonetheless, doing very important work, even if you're not writing a book. Yes, absolutely. It's it's always busy. <laughs> um, Benedict Rogers, it's been really great speaking to you today. Um, we've been speaking about your latest book, The China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. I'm Jane Richards, and this is a podcast on New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network.